Hi, and welcome to Northampton Bible Church's podcast. We are glad that you're here today. If you'd like to learn more about Northampton Bible Church, you can check us out at nbchurchcf.org. You can also interact with us on social media at nbchurchcf. And now, here's today's message. Uh, We are in the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible or you're on the Bible app, if you would just turn to uh, John chapter 2, that's where we're going to be today. And we have been talking about the book of John uh, for a number of weeks, and we've been in the first chapter of John for uh, a couple of weeks, and because we needed to be. And it's John's belief that Jesus is the Christ. It is John's belief that, that who Jesus said he is, is who he is. And it is so important that you and I believe these things. It is eternally important that we believe these things. And John is building this case. He's writing this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and in believing that we might find life. And John doesn't want us to just know facts about Jesus. He doesn't want us to just get all the Bible quiz questions right at the end of the day. What he wants us to do is he wants us to know Jesus. In chapter 1, we heard from John the disciple, we heard from John uh, the baptizer, and if you did your homework last week, you heard from the disciples that Jesus wasn't just a a good man, he wasn't just a good teacher, he wasn't a prophet, Uh, he's God. And it's very profound if you just stop and you, I mean, for some of you, you you might say, yeah, I get it. You know, we've talked about this for four or five weeks already, and I already believed it beforehand. But let me encourage you and, and challenge you to not let that just be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. Let's move on. But to fully take in what it means that Jesus is God, to fully take in what it means that Jesus is the Savior of the world, to fully take in the fact that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Because he is the only way to the Father. And as chapter 2 begins to dawn here, John shifts from the words of others to the words and actions of Jesus. And as we talked about last week, as John said, you don't have to take my word for it. The same thing is kind of true here as he continues to to open us up to, to bigger things. He's like, you don't have to take my word for it or John the baptizer's word for it, even the disciples' word for it. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. And remember that we need to filter all the things that we've talked about. And hopefully you're not sick of seeing this verse, but this is the verse that we'll keep pointing you back to because this is the the thesis. This is the big idea. This is what John is doing. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. I mean, that's why John is writing. And so everything we talk about, if you look at it through that lens, that's why John is doing the things that he's doing. And I would encourage you too. part of the homework that from a couple weeks ago was uh, was looking at uh, the way the gospel is presented multiple, multiple times throughout this book. Uh, if you haven't done that, you can go back and look at it, study guides there, uh, but continue to, to have these things at the forefront of your mind. The other thing is the word believe and how many times the word believe shows up in what John is writing here. And one of the things that I'm encouraged by, by the word of God is that at the same time, uh, if you can look at it this way, it is at the same time like a kiddie pool and at the same time like a vast deep ocean. 
that it has understanding that if you come at it and you're a, a spiritual infant and you come to the Word of God, you can read and you can understand. You can really understand the gospel. You can understand who God is and what God has done. But at the same time, that the, the Word of God can stand up to uh, critical scrutiny, that you could really dig into it. And there's, there's so much there. It's not just this, hey, I read this children's book and it was really good, but I can understand it as a, a spiritual infant, but I could also understand it as a scholar, as a spiritual parent, and it really will speak to me in all those levels. And I want to keep telling you that and reminding you of that because I want you to fall in love with the Word of God. So if you are here and you're kind of maybe like, I don't really know if I believe all this, and you're kind of dipping your toe into the pool, I want you to know that you're welcome. And at the same time, if you're kind of waiting around and like, oh yeah, I've heard some of these things before, you know, that again, you're welcome. And if you are, are out ready to go into the deep end, uh, we want you to know that you're welcome and that the Word of God can sustain all of those things. And that's how powerful His Word is. And so in John chapter 2, we're going to see some events where, where John begins to lay out to us uh, Jesus' power and His passion and even a promise that He gives us all to set the stage for the thesis that John talks about in John twenty thirty one. 31. Uh, so I want you to take it in. We're going to read through pretty much the whole chapter 2, uh, so don't get too overwhelmed by that, but uh, know that we're going to hear what God has to say through Jesus here, what Jesus has to say. So take it in, hear the words, watch what happens, and see lives being changed by Jesus. And we're going to see that John shows us some evidences. These are in your study guide. If you have a study guide, you can, uh, they're online. They're PDF you can print off. You can look at it. It's also in the Uversion app uh, that you can just look at it that way, and you can see all this. But uh, uh, John is pointing us to the power of Jesus. So look at John chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm going to make some, I'm going to stop often <laughs> because I'm trying to fill in some of the gaps, trying to explain some in the white spaces uh, really what's going on. Uh, so don't get... Uh, don't get too excited here. Uh, it's the wedding of Cana, you see. On the third day, and this really is a couple days after the events of chapter 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in, Ga in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so, again, you can preach a, a passage. You can understand a passage. You can teach a, teach a passage. And uh, this is where the deepness comes in. That we can talk about this and talk about that. And talk about Jesus being invited to your party. All those kind of things. But we're trying to stay high level and look at the, what John is, why John is writing the things that he's writing and what do they point to. And so we take in the scene that we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's been invited to this uh, person, this unknown person's wedding. And Jesus and his disciples are there. And understanding that weddings are a much bigger ordeal than they are today, but John records this so that God's power, that Jesus' power would be revealed. This is the first recorded miracle uh, in John's gospel, and he refers to it, as we'll see later, as a sign, as a miracle. It's not about the act itself. It's about the fact that this acted as evidence to who Jesus is and to his power. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, <laughs> they have no wine. This is a big deal. If you're in that context, it was the job of the bridegroom to provide, to make everybody happy, to provide the things that needed to be provided, and, and this was one of those things. And uh, this would have been a great insult, that all of a sudden they're out, what? <laughs> they're out of wine? Like this, we're just getting things going, and, and we don't have any more wine. There was not a, a convenience store that they could run out to and say, hey, we just need, to, we need some more wine. To run out of wine means that the party is it's over. It's coming to an end, and... It means people aren't very happy. And Mary tells Jesus in the hopes that he would do something about it. Verse 4. 
And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. As I was reading this, I thought about, you know, imagine if you said that to your mom. (laughs) Woman. Now, understand, understand that in that context, it wasn't disrespectful. It was not a disrespectful response in that context. Uh, But even Jesus, when he is on the cross, he looks at John and, and, and he says to this disciple, he says, basically, you know, take care of mom. And he calls her woman even there. But while this was not a disrespectful response, I want you to see that this is a transition in Jesus' life and, 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 how, and their dynamics. Because, uh, yes, that's his mother, but, but now he's beginning his earthly ministry. And so things are beginning to change. And, and one of the things that might mess with you, depending on your background, is that, that Mary, is, while she is special in many ways, was not unlike all of us. That we all have to come to Jesus by faith. That we are all sinners separated from God. And, and so we, what we see is that this beginning of this separation, that he's still, it's still my mom, but, but now things are different. And that we all, including Mary, are really on the same level playing field when we approach Jesus. That we are in need of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so what Jesus is saying to her, why are you involving, involving me in this? You know, he didn't come to earth so that he could do man's bidding. Like, okay, what do you need? I, what, should I turn this or should I do that? I can make a rabbit. None of those things. He didn't come to do those, those kind of things. He came to accomplish the will of the Father, which was to seek and to save that which was lost. But he also obeyed his mother. <laughs> he didn't sin. Notice the phrase, and I want you to take note of this as we work through the book of John. He says this phrase right here, that my hour has not yet come. This is part of your digging deeper homework. If you have your study guide, it's on the other page there. I uh, gave you all these places where you might see this phrase, my hour has not yet come, or the hour had not yet come. Uh, this, fa- this phrase is like signposts along the way to get to the end of what John is writing. Because many times you'll hear that. But as we get closer to the, the time of his sacrificial death, what you'll find is that he'll say, my hour has come, or the hour has come. And it's a good study. It's worth your time because the hour is really the time of suffering and death. The hour is this high point of human history when God the Son, when Jesus became sin for us so that we might receive his righteousness. The hour is the reason that Jesus stepped out of eternity, stepped out of heaven to come to earth for this hour. Jesus came to please the Father and face the hour. And even in this early stage, he was keenly aware. And so now his earthly ministry is beginning. And he's like, okay, I, I, I'm focused. I'm laser focused on why I'm here for that hour. And so when Mary comes to him and says, hey, <laughs> they're out of wine. He's like, what, do you, what does that have to do with me? But Mary had faith and confidence that Jesus would do something. And this was the opportunity, I think, that Jesus saw to display his power to show who he was, to begin to grow people's faith, to transform hearts and lives. And he leveraged this moment for that purpose. Look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars with the Jewish rites of purification, eat for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And we're going to stop there because everything that John's writing, there's significance to this. Uh, this was significant because the water jars were used for purification under the law. And so those were there, and Jesus is now here, and John includes this detail because uh, there's a lesson to learn about Jesus. Now that Jesus is on the scene, things are going to begin to change, or things already are changing. The rituals that were connected to the Old Covenant are now giving way to something greater. 
The shadow that is seen in the law is giving way to the substance. The thing pointing uh, to the one who would bring permanent purification has been here. And he's here. That this water ceremony that it has been exchanged for the, the thing, for the one who was to come. That eternal, um, external cleansing has given way to internal transformation that Jesus brings. And so there's significance in using these, these objects and in, in a sense is saying to some people that, wow, this is, there's something different, there's something new, that we're not using them for what we thought we would use them for, that this Jesus is different. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to, his, to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim so that there's no doubt, there's no chance to, to sneak something in. Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw, some out, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And so Jesus turned water into wine. Not into grape juice, as maybe some of us want to try to fit a certain narrative, like, oh, it's grape juice, it's okay. That Jesus turned water into wine, and not just any wine, this wine was far greater than the wine they'd been serving. And we know this because the master of the, of the feast, the master of ceremonies there said, hey, normally we bring out the good stuff, get everybody kind of like feeling all right, and then we bring out the not so good stuff, and they don't know the difference. And, Jesus, and, they, and the, he said to Jesus, you, you brought the good, the, the good stuff has brought, been brought out now. Verse 11. That this is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so what we see is that Jesus, we see the power of Jesus, that the power of Jesus to, to turn water into wine. By changing water into wine, what we see is that Jesus has power over, over creation. That no amount of, of abracadabra I could do or any of you could do could make this happen. And if you're following along, uh, we're, we're doing this. We're looking at these things because we want to discover more and more who Jesus is. And my hope in discovering who Jesus is is that if you say you have a relationship, you say that you're a Christ follower, as you discover more and more about who Jesus is, his heart, uh, why he's here, the mission that he's on, all these things, that may it cause you to fall more in love with who Jesus is. But that also that if, if you're following along, that you would really begin to discover who Jesus is and say, wow, that's, I've never heard that before. Or wow, that's someone worth following. Or wow, Jesus is who he says he is. And you could look at this, this account, you could look at this sign, and you could say, oh, it's just all a fairy tale. Oh, I don't believe it. Or, you know, uh, the Bible can't be trusted. Or uh, Jesus is real, I'll give you that. Um, but I can't make the leap that he is God just because of this whole thing. I would ask you to stick with it. But I also want to remind you that Jesus himself doesn't leave you the option to say that he's anything else but who, who he says he is, that he's God. He very clearly says that he's God. He very clearly says that he's a long-awaited Messiah. Uh, but you could look at all of this that we're looking at, and you can say, yeah, that was really cool, cool story, uh, but I don't believe it. And you have that option, meaning that you can make that decision. But the truth is the truth, whether you believe it or not. And we're going to keep pointing you to the truth. Not so that we can hopefully convince you to, to come into the kingdom, because only God can change your heart. But that we too would be encouraged and challenged, and that we would say, man, I don't want anything else. <laughs> no matter what happens to me, I'm going to trust. 
that Jesus is able to change water into wine because he's the creator of all things. Think about it this way. What would, would normally take a season of rainwater to turn water into wine at the end of the season, Jesus did in an instant. Showing power over creation. He also has the power to transform hearts and lives. I mean, the power to change water into wine is pretty impressive. I mean, if you were at a party and you did that, that'd be a pretty cool party trick. Like, wow, that was really cool. But the power to make someone who's spiritually dead, to make them alive, to breathe life into something that's been dead and make it alive is a far greater feat. And that's what Jesus has come to do. And and the lives of the disciples were beginning to be transformed because they see these things that Jesus is able to do. They see the power that Jesus had. They heard the testimony of John the baptizer, and they said, man, we're going to follow this Jesus. And Jesus began to change their hearts and their lives. That Jesus is in the business of changing hearts and lives, not just 2,000 years ago, but in the, the business of changing hearts and lives today. Because of this act, because of this sign in John chapter 2, their hearts were being transformed and they began to believe in him. And not only began, I mean, they, they've said that they believed in him, but I think, again, it just kind of reinforced this idea of like, okay, this guy may be something different. Look at verse 12. After this, they went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And so early on, Jesus puts his power on display. Uh, Greater things are coming. Uh, Greater signs and miracles are going to be performed. Not to point to the miracle itself. Not to say, look, I did this thing, or I turned water into wine, or we, we fed all these people. But to point back to who Jesus is. The second thing that John shows us is that Jesus, about Jesus, he shows us his passion. So we see his power. Here's his passion. Look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And so much of the events you'll find through the book of John have to are around the Passover. We mentioned the Passover lamb last week, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We talked about the Passover back in Exodus where uh, God said to his people, uh, you know, we're going to, this final plague is going to kill all the firstborn in your family. Unless you do this thing, you take a, a blem- unblemished lamb and, and sacrifice and put the blood on your doorpost and then the, the angel of death will pass over. And that became not just in that moment a thing that they did, but it became a celebration. It became a feast like year after year, again and again and again to remind them of who, what God has done and who he is. And so in this context, if you were an adult living within 15 miles of Jerusalem, you would make that pilgrimage. You would go into town uh, to celebrate and remember the Passover. Uh, And if you attended the Passover, uh, you would would stop at the temple first and you would pay the tax and you would uh, make a sacrifice. You would worship God. And that's what Jesus, Jesus is doing as he enters into the city. He goes into the temple, uh, and it was, <laughs> he finds something he didn't like. Look at verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told them, those who were selling pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In some sense, it made sense to sell animals, to sell them. Because if you're traveling from far and you don't have something, you, you come into town, uh, be, it would be convenient for that to take place. But, but this was taken to the extreme. That This was, this was a, a degree that, that was not even honoring to God, that their worship was not honoring to God, that their worship had been corrupted. And so Jesus gets angry. Is it okay that Jesus gets angry? 
I mean, the easy answer is, yes, it's okay, because he did. <laughs> but we begin to think about anger, and we say, well, we, we were not, we're, are we allowed to get angry? Or can we get angry? Should we get angry? Uh, I would say that it is okay for you to get angry, uh, because genuine love is demonstrated in your anger. Sometimes the proof of my love is that I get angry. <laughs> And that, to me, that doesn't compute very well because I often think, well, no, you're just going to be, you're just going to not, you're going to be like here. And we see Jesus getting angry. I mean, imagine if you have a, a spouse, you have your a wife or whoever, that's someone that's in your life that you really love and somebody's beating them up. You wouldn't sit by and say, man, that, that stinks. Hopefully you would get angry. Hopefully you would say, this is like, this needs to stop. That my anger, really my love, would be expressed in anger. That my love would be anger. Paul says in, in Ephesians 4.26 that in your anger do not sin. That we are allowed to get angry as long as it doesn't cross over into sin. And being angry is an expression of love. It doesn't mean that there's no holds barred. Like, I'm allowed to get angry, so I'm going to do all these bad things. No. But it does mean that I can get passionate, I can get excited, I can get angry about certain things as an expression of my love. And so here, Jesus is angry. Uh, he's not out of control. He's not worked up into a frenzy, but he is passionate about his father's house. It's the place that these people should have been taking care of. They should have been treating things differently. And he comes in and, and all of a sudden there's like this, there's business going on in the sense it was just out of control. And they, it wasn't that they were doing these things to honor God. They were doing these things to make a profit and they've corrupted this place. And so in his anger, he drives them out and he displays without sinning his love for God and really his love for this place. It's interesting to note that Jesus says, my father's house. He doesn't say our father's house to the people. He's my father's house, which I think seems to indicate that these people maybe weren't actually children of God. They were just kind of there like, man, I can make a quick buck. Let's, let's make this happen. And Jesus calling God the Father, my Father, he's displaying this unique relationship that Jesus, God the Son, has with, with God the Father. This eternal relationship that he's had for all time. Uh, and here he has the authority to, uh, unlike anyone else, to protect uh, the temple from corruption. And so there's this passion within him to do that. And so John, writing 60 years later, as we've said, he's able to kind of put some pieces together for us. And if you look at the next verse, verse 17, he says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Because understand that John is writing from this point and looking back and, and, and bringing us on this journey. And he's able to put in some of these things that were, were facts at the time, but maybe not even understood at the time totally. And the cleansing of the temple really showed the disciples and it showed others it was a sign of who Jesus really was. And it reminded them of Psalm 69.9 that says this, that your for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who, re who reproach you have fallen on me. In Psalm 69, King David is writing these words and he's crying out in despair over the opposition uh, for those that, had, that others had toward him. And the fact that, that he had such a passion for the temple, such a passion for God's house that other people couldn't even understand. And just as David was consumed for love, for the, like, I love the temple, I love God's house, so much more was Jesus and so much greater was Jesus for the passion for the temple. This commitment to keep it pure and to keep it, people's hearts right was so much greater than David. And it was a great sign for people to see that, wow, this Jesus may be the Messiah. This Jesus is greater than David. 
The last thing that we want to see is the promise of Jesus. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Uh, Jesus, what right do you have to come in here into this place and start doing what you're doing? Like, how dare you? Who, who are you? Give us a sign. And instead of thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe this guy, this Jesus, maybe he has a point. Maybe like what he's saying and what he's doing, maybe we're doing things wrong. Instead of even looking at themselves, they looked at him and said, who are you? What rights do you have? And they missed the sign. That the Jews saw this sign that the disciples began to see from Psalm 69.9, but they missed it. That that zeal that, that was on display in Jesus' life, the zeal for the temple, uh, the authority that he had, they missed it. Instead, blindly, they asked for a sign to show them that Jesus had the right. And Jesus says this in verse 19. What right? Give us a sign. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three? <laughs> right. It took us 46 years to build this temple, Jesus, and you're by yourself, you're going to raise it up in three days? And then John gives us insight. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, you see that phrase, that it wasn't until this point. So Jesus says these things, and if I'm a disciple, if I'm around, and he's saying these things like, you know, tear this place down and I'll raise it up in three days. And I'm even as a disciple, like, oh, well, that's going to happen, really? And then at the resurrection, they remembered, look what it says. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. That Jesus wasn't referring to the temple, he was referring to himself. Understand that the temple is the place where God's presence dwelled, and we discussed this a few weeks ago. But in Jesus, God dwells in the person of Jesus. God has come to be with his people. And the temple is where sacrifices are made. And, and Jesus, we have the ultimate perfect sacrifice. The sign of the resurrection, that when I rise from the dead, that that will be your sign. That, that one day when you tear this, this house down, I will raise it up again. It will be raised up again. And then you will know. Then you will understand that I'm the Messiah. Then you will understand who I really am. I'm giving you signs. <laughs> I come in and I'm, I'm kicking people out of the temple and saying, look at the zeal that I have for the temple of God, but you don't see it. But there'll be a day that you'll see it. And you'll see, there'll be a promise that I'm making now that you will see it. And so how do we walk away from this? The understanding that Jesus has the power to transform your life today. You know, we talk about this. I talked about, I think, last week, that here I am, speaking 2,000 years later of a guy that showed up and said that he was the Messiah. Then another guy that said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that, that, that what has tied the Old Testament and the New Testament together, this whole, this whole book that we read is not just a book with words written on a page, that this is the living, breathing Word of God, and it all points to Jesus. And it's my job... To remind you of that, it's my job to point to Jesus and everything we talk about. And we talk about the gospel often, and I hope that you never get tired of hearing the gospel. And not only get tired of hearing the gospel, that you never get tired of living it and speaking it. 
That if we believe that the gospel is the gospel, if we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, that that should light a passion in our hearts. I think sometimes we get to this point where it becomes so familiar that we could recite, oh, yeah, yeah, and then Jesus went to the, when he turned water into wine, yeah, 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 I remember that story. Jesus talked to Nicodemus, yeah, 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 Jesus went to the, yeah. But Jesus lives. And that Jesus came on a mission to do what we could never do so that our relationship with the Father could be restored. And I think sometimes it can can become so commonplace, so familiar, that I think we take the power and have the, the potential of taking the power away from the gospel because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. I mean, I would tell you the truth, but if we're being honest, I don't know if I really believe that it's the truth. I mean, I've been taught this, and I believe it, and I'm hoping that that's the case so that when I die, I won't go to hell. That's what I'm hoping for. But if you believe what you want to believe, that's okay. That's not the gospel. Jesus has the power to change your life today. We often look at Matthew 4.19. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I believe it is on us as followers of Jesus to point people to Jesus, to, to get them to that point, not that we can change their heart, but to really give them an opportunity to follow Jesus. And when they follow Jesus, that Jesus is the one who changes them. We don't get them to try to look like a churchgoer, Christian, before they follow Jesus. They come as you are. I came as I was that we would lead people to Jesus just as they are, with all their baggage, with all their, their, their past. And we lead them to Jesus and let Jesus change them. And he does, and he will. That Jesus is still in the business of changing lives. And he still transforms lives today of making people who are spiritually dead, spiritually alive. Just as he has the power to to turn water into wine, he has the power to make dead things alive. And may Jesus' passion to do the will of the Father be our passion as well. Because Jesus says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. May we have that passion to see other people follow Jesus, to be fishers of men, to seek and to save that which was lost to be about the business that God has us here. It's not just to make a million dollars. That's not our goal. God has given you an opportunity in people's lives, in your spheres of influence, to make a difference for all eternity. And that should be our hearts. And if nothing else that you see today, that you would see that the resurrection is real. That Jesus really did die. He really did stay dead. He really was brought back to life, overcoming the grave, overcoming death. That the resurrection is the ultimate sign that Jesus is who he says he is. If the resurrection isn't true, then we are of all people to be most pitied, Paul says. But the resurrection is true. And that's the hope that we have. Uh, Scott used an illustration today in our nine o'clock, um, our time to our prayer and share time together. And it was really, it really hit home for me. Um, 
because I think it was a great picture of explaining things that I've tried to say a lot. Uh, but if you're on an airplane and the airplane is going down, you have an option. Uh, let's say that the airplane has parachutes because that's important in this story. Uh, but if you had a, a parachute or you say, hey, look, I, I believe a parachute can save me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to flap my arms really quickly and I'm going to I'm try to make it on my own here. I'm gonna, I, mean, I believe that I can, I can at least glide to the ground. Uh, it doesn't work. But if you believe that that parachute is going to save you and can save you, and you liken that to Jesus, that Jesus is the one who comes around it, that we, as I put my faith and my trust in him, that I can be saved. I think so many people are trying to flap their arms in life, spiritually, to try to be good enough, to try to rescue themselves. And the Bible is very clear that we can't do it. But when I, and I, this is the other part of that, that I could say, yeah, I see that parachute. I believe that parachute can save me 100%. I believe it. But I'm not saved by that parachute. I'm not saved in that scenario until what? Until I take that parachute and I put it on and I say, that's it. We're all in. I'm good. I'm out. The same thing is true with Christ, that I can believe all day that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah. I believe these things. I believe these things. But John says, I want you to know Him. And in knowing Him means putting my faith in Him. It means putting on the parachute. It means saying, okay, I trust in Christ alone. I'm going to stop flapping my arms. I'm going to stop wishing for something better, and I'm going to trust Christ. And may we do that today, not just at that moment of, of forgiveness, of salvation, but maybe an everyday choice to choose Christ and see how our lives would look different. Let's pray.